The following message is from the 2016 IBCD Summer Institute. Disordered Desires, Bringing Grace to Modern Sexuality. In this session, I want to, to talk about how we use stories, uh, both uh, teaching from stories and, and counseling from stories. Uh, and so I'm going to do a little bit about how, just how we use stories, and then we're going to use David Bathsheba uh, as, as a test case, an example. How do we actually use that story uh, in ways that perhaps are a little different from what you might have uh, expected? Uh, so we begin with uh, the question, why so many stories in the Bible? Why is the Bible so full of stories? In some ways, you have to admit that's kind of an odd choice on the part of God the Holy Spirit, because we don't think of stories as serious stuff. Right? Stories are, are for the beach in summer. Stories are for kids. Uh, and, uh, and yet the Bible, the most serious book in the world, contains a lot of stories. In fact, the overall shape of the Bible itself is one grand narrative. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Uh, why does God do that? Why, why, why didn't he just give us a systematic theology? I mean, he could have. He could have just revealed, you know, systematic theology, volume one, two, three, four, five. Uh, and in some ways, that'd be a whole lot easier for us. So why so many stories? Well, um, one answer is the universal appeal of a good story. Not everybody loves reading theology textbooks. <laughs> Go figure. Yeah, and not just those theology textbooks that are dry and dull, but even the good ones. Um, Children struggle with abstract concepts and ideas, but everybody loves a good story. Uh, and uh, the youngest child, the oldest saint, together can learn uh, and enjoy a well-written narrative. A narrative can be simple enough for children to understand the basic point, but complex enough that you can still wrestle with it and, and, and learn from it uh, years after that. Take David and Goliath, for example. You know, what's complicated about David and Goliath? Um, very simple story. Uh, my Old Testament professor in seminary used to act out the story of David and Goliath with his three-year-old daughter. Uh, he, of course, was, was Goliath, and his three-year-old daughter was David, uh, and she had a blankie and a table tennis ball. Uh, and, and, and so this is how it would work. He would go and menace her, uh, and, and she would have to do two things. Uh, she'd have to take the table tennis ball, wrap it in the blankie, uh, and, and she would have to say, I come against you in the name of the Lord, and she'd have to throw the table tennis ball. Um, she didn't actually have to hit him, but if she did both of those things, he'd fall over. If she only did one of those two things, he wouldn't fall over, right? What a great teaching lesson for a three-year-old about who God is, about God's power, God's strength. Uh, about facing the giants in your life, if you like. Um, but children are likely to miss a lot more that's going on in the story. Um, David has five smooth stones. Goliath has five pieces of high-tech weaponry. Uh, but in a conflict between these five smooth stones and five pieces of high-tech weaponry, the simple stuff is always going to work out. Why? Because God is behind David, obviously. Um, the irony of Saul's eagerness to dress up David in his armor. Uh, why did Israel want a king? First Samuel 8. Well, to be like all the nations around them. But, but what does a king do for you? To lead you out into battle, right? Saul, this is your cue, right? You got the armor. This is, this is why we, got, we had a king, right? And yet here's David, eager to dress up, uh, so eager to dress up David in his royal armor. I mean, he's, he's essentially saying, David, you're the one, right? Uh, easy to miss. Um, narratives also can put flesh on abstract ideas. You shall not covet. You shall not kill. Both sort of abstract ideas. Uh, put them together in the story of David and Bathsheba, and you've you got a concrete example of what happens when you don't obey God's law. Uh, the narratives of Scripture show us what God's law looks like and God's character looks like in practice, not just in theory. Uh, God told Moses back in Exodus, 
I am the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, who does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers, the third and fourth generation. God told Moses that in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. The rest of the Old Testament is commentary, right? What does it actually mean for God to be a patient compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in covenant faithfulness. That's why the Old Testament is so long, right? Yeah, it's like you say, I'm a really patient person. I can only show you in the next 30 seconds just how patient I am. It it doesn't work, right? You can't show your patience except over a period of time. How do you show God-sized patience? It's going to take a really long time. That's why the Old Testament is so long. Um, you need something that long to demonstrate what it looks like in practice for God to be such a God. Then there's the complexity of life. Life on earth is really simple and unambiguous. Um, your life is not simple and unambiguous, and the life of your counselees is not simple and unambiguous either. We are all bit players in a much larger uh, a story, and narrative is really well suited to convey that idea. The biblical writers believed in history as a divinely supervised story. History, on their view, was not simply one darn thing after another. Or to use Joseph Heller's phrase, it was not a trash bag of circumstances torn open in the wind. There's a story being told here, a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, and, And for that reason, it could and it had to be told as a story that discerned and reflected the skill of the divine artist who was at work, sometimes behind the scenes, sometimes on the front page. And so biblical narrative is a fundamental statement about the nature of reality, that however hard it may be to discern from day to day, history is God's story. He is unfolding in space and time a mystery that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And that's a theological perspective that makes narrative perfect for connecting with the story of our counselees. They, too, have stories. But how do stories work? Let's take an example. Goldilocks and the Three Bears, right? We're all familiar with Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Uh, Goldilocks, this uh, little girl who goes for a walk in the woods. Where are her parents? We have no idea. Uh, and she finds this house, and as kids will, she walks in. There's nobody there because the three bears have gone out for a walk earlier. Uh, but they've prepared the porridge. And she tries the big bowl of porridge, and it's too hot. The small bowl of porridge is too cold. You don't ask too many questions about the thermodynamics of this. Uh, but the medium bowl of porridge is just right, and so she eats it all up. Uh, and she sits on the chairs, and the, you know she breaks... Uh, uh, the, the chair that she sits in, and then she goes, uh, tries the beds. You know, Father Bear, Bear's bed is, is too hard, and, and Mother Bear's bed is, is, is too, uh, too soft, but Baby Bear's bed is just right, so she falls asleep there, right? What is this a story about? Well, clearly it's a cautionary tale uh, about the dangers that exist in this world. But which dangers it warns you about depends on who you identify with in the story. If you identify with Goldilocks, what's the message of the story? The message of the story is, beware of the bears coming home unexpectedly. If you're going to go out and enter your neighbor's house illegally, destroy their furniture, eat their food, don't fall asleep in their bed. Get out while you still can. Now, clearly, this is a story that is full of spiritual meaning, right? And if Goldilocks is us, then clearly the three bears represent God, right? There are three of them. There's a father bear. There's a son bear. Well, no analogy is perfect, right? We don't want to get too far with that. Um, And the message of the story, therefore, is be ready for the return of the bears. You don't want to be found sleeping when they return. Least of all, surrounded by the evidence of your sins. You might get left behind. Notice, though, how the meaning of the story shifts if you identify with the three bears. Now the message of the story is, beware of the blonde bombshell. Goldilocks is this innocent-looking little girl. Uh, You would never suspect her of being a dangerous hoodlum. Well, just because people look innocent and the world looks safe, don't be fooled. 
Lock your door before you go out. Uh, given the same spiritual twist, Goldilocks here clearly represents Satan. Right? We're told Satan dresses himself up as an angel of light. The house is the church, whose furniture and food, doctrine and morals, Satan is out to destroy. But be of good cheer, fellow bears, because when you stand up to the golden-haired Satan, she will flee from you. Right? Resist the devil, and he will run away. Now, that exercise is a bit of fun, but it illustrates an important point. This is how stories work. Stories work by inviting you to identify the characters, setting, and plot line with yourself and the narrative of your life. The better the connection, the more powerful the story. If you make the wrong connections, of course, you can wrench a meaning out of a story that it was never intended to carry, as we just did. So how do stories work, just very briefly? Let me talk briefly about plot and character. What is it that makes a story a story? Well, to make a story a story, you have to have a plot. A narrative is a sequential story. This happened, and then that happened. But it's also a consequential story. It, 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 this and then that also has to be this and so that. There has to be a logical connection between the events that happen. And a single narrative may be made up of a number of different scenes. So here I've done uh, an analysis of Genesis 3 for us. Uh, and the way I identified the scenes is I looked at the, the characters who are on stage, as it were, at any point. Uh, in each case, there's kind of two characters on, on stage, active uh, in, each, uh, in each scene. Uh, we start out with the snake and the woman. Uh, in verses 1 through 5, we then have the woman and her man, which is kind of an interesting way of depicting their relationship, right? Uh, then we have God and the man, verses 8 through 12. Uh, when God enters the scene, God, uh, notice God addresses the man first, then the woman, then the serpent, the snake. Uh, and then... Uh, God's uh, uh, judgment, yeah, so the snake, uh, the woman, and the man. Verse 20, we have the man and the woman, the man and his woman, right? And then verses 21 and tw through 24, we have God and the man. Now, this, this is a chiastic structure, uh, uh, kind of X-shaped structure, uh, which shows you, first of all, where the, where the turning point of the narrative is. The centerpiece of a chiasm is the turning point. The turning point of the story is God's word to the serpent, which is the promise of the Savior, ultimately. Now, you, if you know anything about Genesis 3, you probably knew that that's kind of the central point of the story, but it's interesting how the story itself is crafted around that. But this structure also shows us what this story is about, which is about the reversal of relationships. God set relationships in order in Genesis 1 and 2. God created Adam first. God gave Adam the law. Of all the trees of the garden you can eat, just not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then God created Eve, and God gave Adam and Eve together dominion over the lower animals. And here we have something in the form of one of the lower animals telling the woman what to do, and the woman and her man, who's standing by doing nothing through all of this, then get led astray. God enters the scene. What does he do? He, he puts relationships back in order. Addresses the man and the woman, the serpent, and we have this reordered structure in verse 20. Now the man and his woman. So we can see that Genesis 3 is all about relationships. Uh, and the way in which sin turns relationships upside down. There's a whole other talk we could do on that. But here I just wanted to show us that as we break stories down into scenes, that can help us get our arms around what's going on and see how a story actually uh, works. Uh, we could also simply talk about not just scenes, but also stages of development. Stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Typically, the beginning of a story, what's called the exposition, uh, introduces the characters, provides the setting of the story, gives you background information and details that are necessary to understand how the story works. Um, so, uh, Genesis uh, 29, classic uh, narrative. Genesis 28, of course, is uh, Jacob uh, on the run, right? He's deceived his father, stolen the birthright, Esau's out to kill him, uh, and so Jacob has to leave home. Genesis 28, we have Jacob at Bethel, 
right, where God appears to him in this dream, this uh, vision of a stone staircase with the angels ascending and descending. God promised to be with uh, Jacob uh, and to fulfill his, his, prom- his blessing upon him. Genesis 29, Jacob is on a journey, right? That's a classic scene division. So he starts uh, this uh, journey. Uh, he arrives in a new, de- uh, new location, and he discovers there a well. Um, what happens at wells in the Bible? You have no, never noticed this? Conversations. Conversations with chicks, right? You go to a well to meet the, meet the women. That's where the women are, right? Because the women are guarding the water. So you go to a well to meet women, right? This is not the first time in Genesis that somebody has gone to a well looking for a woman. Uh, it's actually the same well. Uh, back in Genesis 24, it was Abraham's servants, right? He went to this well looking for a woman, not for himself, but for his master's son. Uh, Jacob comes to the same well also looking for a wife. Invites us compare and contrast, right? Everything English literature majors learn to do, compare and contrast. Uh, when Abraham's servant comes to the well, what does he do? Well, two things. He prays, and as he prays, he asks the Lord, may the woman who comes to meet me water my animals. Why that? Well, it's a test. Not like Gideon's test. It's a test of character, right? He's looking for a woman who, is, who has a servant's heart. And the Lord connects them together, and within a few days, he's headed back home with the wife for his master's son. What does Jacob do when he arrives at the well? Well, he doesn't pray. Uh, he meets these shepherds who are all gathered together, and they, they tell him, you know, we have a shepherd's union here. Uh, and the rule is that, you know, until everybody's here, nobody does anything uh, because it's just a lot of work to roll away the stone from the well. Uh, and uh, so, you know, we're just sitting around here wasting our time waiting for everybody to show up. Um, and uh, up uh, rolls... Uh, uh, the wife figure, right? Uh, and she's a shepherdess, which immediately tells uh, Jacob there's a job opening, right? Because shepherding is tough work. Uh, and, uh, you know, women wouldn't... Yeah, if it's like being a cowboy. And, and, you know, so it's not... You don't typically have women who are shepherds unless you don't have guys who can do it for them. Uh, and so Jacob rolls away the stone himself, uh, sees... Rachel and her sheep, and over the next several chapters, he's going to collect Rachel and her sheep, get them away from Laban, and move them on, right? Everything in those verses has a purpose that sets us up for the way the story is going to go. Uh, As you go along through the story, the narrative tension rises. Uh, Initially, in the exposition part of the story, there's very little tension, it's just describing how things are. But then as the story unfolds, narrative tension rises, there's something, some, com- uh, some uh, conflict, some reason why things are getting difficult, and then that gets resolved and that ends your uh, episode. Uh, so, uh, so much by way of brief explanation of plot and narrative, characters. You know, plot keeps the story moving, characters are what keeps the story interesting. And characterization is a key way in which biblical narratives convey their message. And one way you can convey characterization is through describing the outward appearance of an individual. But the Bible very rarely gives you much of a description of how a person looks. Uh, And there isn't always a direct connection between appearance and character. It's not like fairy tales, right? In fairy tales, you know, the ugly sisters, well, because they're ugly, you know that they have to be bad, right? Uh, the Wicked Witch is always ugly, right? Ugly people are bad, right? Who allowed that to happen, right? Yeah, where was political correctness when you needed it? Beautiful people are good. Really? Have you met beautiful people? Really? The Bible's not like that. It's much more complicated, right? Uh, when you have an information about appearance in the Bible, it usually serves uh, to, to introduce some key future plot elements. Uh, So Esau is a hairy man, and Jacob is smooth. Why is that important? 
Well, how does the smooth man uh, impersonate the hairy man and deceive somebody, right, his father, even if his father's blind, right? That's going to be a problem. Well, we soon discover Jacob is going to dress up in Esau's clothes and he's going to wear these goat, uh, goat's hair uh, uh, armbands and deceive his father, right? Um, but there's more to it than that also. Um, Esau is the original redneck, right? You know, in the ancient world, just in the modern world, hairy people uh, tended to be uncouth. Uh, and Esau is not just hairy, he's described as ruddy in complexion uh, in Genesis 25. So when you think of Esau, what do you think of? You think of pickup trucks, ponytails, tattoos, biker bars. Uh, when you think of Jacob, he's smooth. You think of Italian suits, crocodile leather shoes. You just want to make sure you still have your wallet when you leave his company. In other places, the narrator describes a person's inner personality, either their character traits or their state of mind. And again, usually to orient you for something about what's going to happen in the story. Generally speaking, the Bible displays people's characters through their actions. Uh, And of course, in narrative, as in real life, the problem with that is that actions are often enigmatic or ambiguous. Why is it that Mordecai will not bow down to Haman? Is he proud? Does he have some reservations about bowing down to any human being? Um, Is it legitimate? Is it illegitimate? The the Bible doesn't unpack that. It it expects you to do the hard work of assessing that, just as we do in real life, right? You know, so if you say to me, uh, let's meet for dinner, and we arrange a a, a place, uh, and, and I show up, and you're not there, what does that tell me about you? Well, if it's just once, it probably doesn't tell me very much at all, right? You got stuck in traffic, you broke down, cell phone died. It happens, right? If this is now the 10th time that's happened, though, I'm forming an impression of your character, right? Because there's a pattern here. And so, too, in biblical narratives, often we have this cumulative impact of the various actions of a character that lead you to assess their motivations. But in all of this, don't miss the main character in the biblical text, who is, of course, God, right? Uh, It's amazing how often you hear people talk about biblical texts and talk about all the human characters and who did this and why they did that and completely miss the fact of what God is up to. Now, of course, sometimes the Bible makes it very plain, right? But God is centrally, uh, the central figure active in the story, right? Passing the Red Sea, uh, setting Mount Sinai on fire, right? Can't miss God in those stories, but Book of Esther, right? God is not mentioned in the story. Does that mean that he's not there? Well, the turning point of the story is not what we typically think. Typically, we think the turning point of the story is where Esther makes that bold decision to stand up and confront uh, the king. Uh, in fact, if you look at uh, the, the, the movie version of Esther, they actually played with the chronology to make that the turning point. It's not turning point in the biblical narrative. Things get worse for the Jews after that. Uh, Haman starts building this gallows. He's going to hang Mordecai on. Mordecai doesn't even know it's happening. The turning point is what happens at the beginning of chapter 6. What happens at the beginning of chapter 6? Not much. The king can't sleep. Now, if you're the king of Persia and you can't sleep, what do you do? Well, the answer is whatever you want to do. You want your favorite boy band in for a concert? Bring them on, right? You want dancing girls? You want food? You want drink? What does he want? He wants a reading from the royal annals. Now, I've read some of those royal annals. Not the most exciting stuff in the world. Maybe that's the point, right? Maybe if that will put me to sleep, nothing will, right? But it just so happens that the reading from the royal annals is about when Mordecai uncovered a plot and saved the king's life. And it just so happens that the king never rewarded him for that. And the Persian kings were very diligent about rewarding people. And it just so happens that as the king's trying to decide what to do to reward Mordecai, there's Haman outside in the court. And it just so happens, it just, yeah, it just so happens. All of this stuff that just so happens has to just so happen in order to deliver the Jews. Is that God? Absolutely, that's God. But that's God working in the way that he works in most of our lives, right? I mean, he's never parted the traffic on I-78 in front of me. I wish he would, right? That's not my experience of God, typically. 
But all of those just so happens. You know, all of those things that seem like coincidences, and yet those are God at work, right? God is the main character in the story. We always have to ask, how is God at work in those stories? But how do we get to application? Um, let me give you a little example. First Kings 18, we're all familiar with the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, his dramatic confrontation with the prophets of Baal. But how does he get there? Uh, In the beginning of chapter 18, he meets a guy called Obadiah. Obadiah is King Ahab, who is the bad king, right? Husband of Jezebel, uh, who goes around killing prophets. Uh, He is King Ahab's chief steward, top guy in his house. And King Ahab and Obadiah headed in two different directions trying to find grass to sustain their horses because Elijah has pronounced a drought under the Lord on the land. And Elijah, and, and, and Ahab's been looking for Elijah. He's looked everywhere for Elijah. And so Elijah comes along and he meets up with Obadiah. Obadiah recognizes him, right? How could you not? He's wearing a leather coat and leather belt. And he just, he just looks like Elijah, right? I mean, you couldn't miss Elijah. Um, and uh, uh, Elijah says to Obadiah, Obadiah, I want you to go and say to your master, behold, Elijah. Uh, and, and, and Obadiah freaks out. He says, he'll kill me. You know, don't, don't you know that I've been serving the Lord from my youth? I, I hid a hundred prophets in caves when Jezebel was killing them, and now you say to me, go and say to your master, look, Elijah, what's going on here? Well, we miss something here because we don't see, we don't, in English, Elijah is just a, a name, right, Elijah. But in Hebrew, it's a name that has a meaning, And that meaning is, my God is Yahweh. So what Elijah is saying to Obadiah is, I want you to go say to the king, my God is Yahweh. That's what Obadiah has been avoiding, right? Because Jezebel kills people, right? He's serving the Lord in secret, but he thinks, if I go and make a public with my faith, I might die. Now, of course, Elijah says, so what, right? I mean, you might die happens, right? Lots of biblical people die, right? Uh, and we never get to find out exactly what the sto- how the story works out, right? But the, the reason that story is there is to invite you to place your life alongside that, right? Book of Kings is written to God's people in exile. You can tell that because of where it ends, right? It ends with the exile. There's no mention of the return, right? Chronicles, we're going to mention the return because Chronicles is written after the exile. Book of Kings is written in exile. If you're in exile in Babylon, is this an issue you wrestle with? Should I go public with my faith? You better believe it's an issue you wrestle with, right? I'm a God-fearer. Nobody knows I'm a God-fearer, but I'm a God-fearer, right? In secrets, in privates. Uh, and that's, this story says, what about actually letting people know? See it in the book of Daniel. I mean, the right, same theme is right there on the face of, of the book of Daniel, right? So application works by inviting you to, to, to identify with Obadiah. Are you likewise a secret worshiper of the Lord? Does that resonate with people today? Absolutely, right? And maybe increasingly in the days and months and years ahead, right? As we become a more hostile society, right? So the application works by inviting us to identify with the character uh, in the story. The danger of that approach, of course, of identifying with the character of the story uh, is that we tend to uh, reduce Bible stories to moral lessons. And so we find the point of the text in the timeless universal truths Uh, and find in these scripture passages uh, exhortations to dare to be a Daniel, just say no to being a Jephthah. Uh, And when we make those connections, we we may dispense wise advice, but there's no connection of these stories to the grand narrative of the scripture. And so as a result, we end up in moralism. Uh, The problem is not so much the line that we draw, it's the line that we don't draw. And so... To avoid moralism and to recognize Christ, I'm going to put up here a larger picture. Um, let me start with the uh, bottom left-hand corner here. I think you have this in your handout. Uh, bottom left-hand corner, we start with the Old Testament event, story, institution. That's our starting point. Uh, very often, people go the route of allegorical moralism, which is straight across the bottom of the application. So 
um, yeah, so, uh, I mean, uh, listening to Christian radio, uh, taking on the, the giants in your life. Right, so what are the giants in your life? Well, the giants in your life are pornography, uh, your mother-in-law, uh, all of these different difficulties you have, uh, and so you can learn uh, to be the David, right, in this story. You, you be David, and you, uh, you lop off the head of your giants, and you, you know, so you, you, know, you knock your giant down, you lop the head off your giant, you make sure he's really, really dead, uh, and you move on, right? Um, allegorical moralism because it doesn't, first of all, ask what that story is doing in its Old Testament context, right? What's the connection between David and Goliath and the rest of 1 Samuel? Um, How does this story connect with Israel's search for a king, right? Um, It just goes straight to what do I, what's the lesson that I think people need to learn? And often those are good lessons, right? And it's true that we should take on the giants in our lives and, you know, be thorough in killing them and all the rest of it. Uh, not if it's your mother-in-law, but that's a different story. Um, as I pointed out earlier, historically, that's not what people did when they allegorized. Instead, they, they found Jesus, right? So in the story in uh, Genesis 29, Jacob rolls away the stone from, uh, from the well and waters the sheep. Well, obviously, that's rolling the stone away from the tomb. That's how we get to Jesus, you know, his resurrection, and uh, the living water that flows from the well, you know, is living water for us. And, you know, again, uh, we're not really understanding the story in its original context. We're going straight to application, except historically the church found application in Christ rather than simply, here's the stuff you need to do. Um, instead, what we, uh, well, and again, the other aspect, people, uh, more sophisticated contemporary readings tend to, yeah, ask what First uh, Samuel 17 is doing to First Samuel, but they still go from there straight to application without understanding the bigger picture. And so what we're trying to encourage us to think about is how does this story fit in the grand narrative of Scripture? Uh, where is the line in this story that connects us to Christ? You know, in Luke 24, Jesus says that the central message of the Old Testament is the sufferings in Christ and the glories that will follow. So how does this story connect us uh, to that? And then through that, application. That doesn't mean we don't get application. What should I do differently this week? Of course, the Bible, you know, all Scripture is given by God for, uh, for training in righteousness, for teaching, for reproof. The Old Testament has lots to teach us about what we should do on Monday morning, but we get there through this gospel-centered approach that sees how this story fits uh, and how it points us uh, to Christ. So, let's get it to David and Bathsheba. Uh, let's think about that story. And, and I want to do this really as kind of workshops. So I want people to contribute here uh, and see if we can, uh, we can, we can uh, learn some things from this story. Uh, how does this story typically get preached? What, what, what lesson do people typically draw out of this story? Where do people go with this? Adultery. What's that? Adultery. Adultery is a bad thing. Yeah. Well, that's, a, that's, that's true, right? Yeah. Okay. So the, the danger of one sin leading to another, Right? Uh, that once you get involved in one sin, then it can spiral out of control, right? Yeah. At that time, David took a break from the king. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so, so there, and we'll see this, that's starting with the exposition, right? At the time when kings go to war. Um, tiny print, so you can't see it, probably. But if, right up the top here, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle... What's that saying? Well, kings should, should go out to battle. Where's David? Not out of battle. So, so, so how do people make application of that? Right, and so the point is, when we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing, Satan has an opportunity, right? You, you've probably heard that sermon, right? Which is true, right? I mean, it's true that when we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing, Satan has an opportunity. Um, but again, a lot of these things tend to be sort of superficial uh, co- comparisons. Um, so how do we, how do we get to uh, a more profound understanding? Uh, and, and notice that they tend to lead you in a moralistic direction, right? So if it's simply... Um, 
if you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, Satan has an opportunity that can easily become, okay, so do what you're supposed to be doing. Loser, right? One sin leads to another, so, so don't commit the first sin. Then you'll have no problems, right? Now, again, the problem is not the lines they're drawing. It's if that's all you get, then we're in moralism, right? We're not connecting this with the gospel. We're not connecting with this with the grand narrative of Scripture. We're not really understanding what this passage has to show us. Um, so, when I approach a story like this, the first thing I try to do is to break it down into scenes. Uh, and typically, scene divisions happen when uh, somebody uh, goes on stage or off stage, as it were, if you think about it as a play, you know, a new, when a new character is introduced, uh, or if there's a time change, time division, uh, that can, or like a journey, a new place. Uh, and so I've broken this uh, into scenes. Uh, verse 1 is a scene by itself. Uh, and the way we know that it's a scene by itself uh, is, well, firstly, there's, there's no action in the first scene, right? It's exposition. The action begins in verse 2, right? And notice we've got a time marker, one afternoon, right? So that time marker often is a flag that we've got a new scene. Um, verses 2 through 4 uh, are a single scene, right? We know that there's, a, there's a time division between verses 4 and 5, right? She returned, she returned to her house in verse 4, uh, she conceived and sent a message, right? It takes a while for that, you know, she didn't instantly know that, right? So there's going to be a time break there. Um, and uh, uh, then we have uh, Uriah arriving in verse 7, so I, I put a little uh, break uh, there. Um, I put a break at the beginning of verse uh, uh, 10. Why? Because, uh, well, let's go back here. Uh, let's unpack uh, that scene. Um, uh, David invites Uriah home as part of his cover-up, and of course Uriah doesn't go home to his wife, which of course then creates an additional complication. And so when that doesn't happen, we then have to have plan B. And so plan B, uh, David gets uh, Uriah uh, 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 drunk, uh, and that still doesn't work, and so then we have to have plan C, which is bumping off uh, Uriah. We have the sending of the message. Um, we have uh, uh, Joab uh, receiving the message uh, and uh, taking, care, taking care of Uriah, uh, which doesn't take very long at all. Uh, figuring out how to tell David, that seems to take a lot longer than actually bumping Uriah off, which is intriguing. Um, and so he, he has to think very carefully how he's going to convey the message. Um, in fact, it turns out David is not concerned at all about all the stuff that Joab's worried about. Uh, he's just happy Uriah's dead. Uh, and then we have the closing scene of this uh, chapter, uh, which wraps ever everything up, apparently. Uh, the wife of Uriah mourns her husband. David takes her into his house. She becomes his wife. Um, uh, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, right? That's our conclusion of this chapter. Uh, and and it's, it is remarkable because the narrator of, of this uh, this book doesn't very often tell us what the Lord's thinking about things. So I mean, he's kind of smacking around the face, just in case you were wondering if this is okay. Um, so breaking it down into those smaller scenes, I find helps me get my arms around it. And so I then try to kind of summarize each of those scenes and try to figure out um, what's going on. And uh, you know, that helps build up a picture of the, uh, the whole story. Um, where, where, where's the dramatic tension in the story? What, what causes dramatic tension in the story? The yeah, there, there's really not much dramatic tension in, in the actual uh, event itself of David and Bathsheba sleeping together. It's, it's very matter-of-factly reported. Uh, and, and it almost feels like, well, if that had been all that had happened, then no big deal, it becomes tense because, yeah, she becomes pregnant. Why, why is that a problem? She's got a husband who's not there. Not only is he not there, he's out fighting with the troops. And, uh, yeah, managing that story 
that, that's kind of bad for morale. Um, and uh, so we want to cover that up and make sure nobody knows about it. And so the tension is, well, how do we cover it up? And, and, and the tension rises with each effort to try to cover it up, right? So the first effort to cover it up is, okay, David, I know what I'll do. I'll just invite Uriah home. Bring him back from the front. Send him home. He'll sleep with his wife. Plausible deniability, right? That's all it takes. Problem solved. But of course, yeah, he doesn't do what David thinks he's going to do. And that, so now the tension's ratcheted up. Now, now what are you going to do, David? Now it's even worse, right? Now your plausible deniability's out the window. So well, what if I get him drunk, right? So he can't remember what he did or not. Um, and that doesn't work because he still won't go home. Uh, and so the tension is ratcheting up until Uriah's dead, uh, Bathsheba's assimilated, and... Uh, the tension dissolves, except for that last niggling thing. Well, the, Lord, the Lord's not happy with this. That, the end of the story is not yet told, right? You know, even before we get into, into chapter 12, we know that this is not the end of it, right? Something more is going to have to happen. Of course, you know, narratives typically uh, go on uh, further. Um, yeah, let's start with that exposition, uh, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. So that invites us to think about context. Right? So, so what's been happening before this? Our answer is, of course, we don't know, right? We don't know, you know, we, we don't know every chapter of the Old Testament. You don't know every chapter of the Old Testament? Particularly ones like chapter 10, because it's not that exciting, right? It doesn't show up in any Bible storybooks. There are no veggie tales about it. So how would we know it, right? Um, in the previous chapter, this battle against the Ammonites this, this, uh, uh, has already begun. Um, and it's quite striking that even in chapter 10, the Lord's name does not appear, except in Joab's uh, cheer the troops talk. Uh, so Joab mentions the Lord's name, but there's no talk of the Lord actually being involved in the action, which is intriguing because also the Lord is not mentioned anywhere in this chapter until right at the very end. Um, and uh, David is not where he's supposed to be, right? Why not? Why wouldn't David be with the troops? Well, it doesn't tell us, right? So you've got to put it together for yourself. Where is he? In his palace in Jerusalem, right? He's conquered a Canaanite city that's now his private city, and he's starting to behave like a Canaanite king. Um, not only that, but why did Israel want a king? Somebody lead us into battle. We saw Saul flunk that. Now David's doing the same thing. It's uncomfortable to go out to battle. You know, he's, he's spent a lot of his life fighting, and he's tired of fighting, and why not have somebody else do it now? And so he stays home, and that's, that's where it starts. You know, it's true, right? He's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. And that's what sets him up then for this situation. So it happens one afternoon, David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of his house. He saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Uh, of course, yeah, that, that takes more than one look, right? You know, how long does it take to figure out she's beautiful, right? I mean, it's, it's not just that he happened to glance her and moved on, right? Um, and David sent and inquired about the woman... And they said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Why is it important that we hear this exchange? David knows that she's married before he sends for her, right? This is also the only place in the story where her name is mentioned, Striking, isn't it? Nobody else uses her name. You know, she's the wife of Uriah. 
generally elsewhere, which of course underlines her status. Uh, so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. This is not, they had dinner, went to a movie, had a glass of wine. This is not a seduction. This is an exercise of power. You know, and the, the rapidity of the verbs just kind of highlight that. Um, and then she returned to her house. This is David using her. Uh, there's, there's, no, there's no romance here. There's no seduction. Uh, it's the raw exercise of power. Um, and, uh, and David probably thinks, hmm, done. Then, of course, uh, yeah, the woman conceived. That makes things complicated. And she sent a message to David and told him, I'm pregnant. Notice there's no demands. There's no suggestions, no threats. Just a statement of an awkward fact. So David sent word um, to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David, right? So how are we going to deal with this awkward fact? We're going to bring Uriah home and plausible deniability. Now, think about that, though. You're working in the royal palace. There's this messenger who gets sent over to knock, you know, knock on this neighboring house. Uh, tell me about the woman who lives here. Which woman? Oh, oh the, the beautiful one who was bathing. Yeah, that's an awkward conversation, isn't it? How exactly did you know that, right? Uh, and then this woman gets summoned to the royal palace uh, and goes in before the king and the doors are closed and then she comes out and goes home. You think there weren't any rumors? You know, I mean, David may think, oh, nobody knows about this, but come on, right? I mean, we know how these things work. But plausible de- deniability matters. And so Uriah comes home. David asks how Joab was doing. How's the shalom? How's the peace of the battle? Uh, not just once, but three times. How Joab's doing, how the people are doing, how the war was going. Uh, and David said to Uriah, go down to your house and, and wash your feet. Um, and Uriah went out to the king's house, and the king sent a present after him. Yeah, have a good time. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, didn't go down to his house. Now, we're not told yet why Uriah did this. You know, we don't know what Uriah's thinking yet. They told David Uriah didn't go down to his house. Well, why not? Why, why, why wouldn't he do that? I would. Um, David said to Uriah, why didn't you go to the house? Uriah says to David, you know, and this is important, right? We, we're, we're putting quite a lot of words in here, so this has got to be important. Um, Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and shelters uh, and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live, as my soul lives, I will not do this thing. Stick the knife in, turn it right. David, not only have you been lying, you know, sit, lying here comfortably in your bed, while all of your soldiers and the Ark of the Covenant, who, which represents the Lord's presence, is out there in the field and and not only have you been sleeping in your own bed, whether Uriah suspects something or not here, um, e- either way, the knife's being put in, right? This just highlights David's guilt because he's done what Uriah thought was you know, unfitting for him, even though legitimately he's married you know, to his wife. Um, and so then David tries, yeah, round two, tries getting him drunk, still doesn't work, and so uh, he sends Uriah the letter, uh, he sends uh, Joab the letter, put Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him so he'd be struck down and die. It tells you something about Joab, right, that you can write that kind of letter. And if you know anything about Joab from the rest of the story, you're not altogether surprised. Joab is not a nice character. Um, 
And uh, so we're not entirely surprised that you could write that kind of letter to Joab, but um, he makes it sound very clean and clinical, right? Surgical strike, just take out Uriah, just have somebody else, you know, have, have the enemy take out Uriah. As we, as we see in what follows, it, yeah, it's never that easy to unpick these things, and it's not just Uriah who dies, but a number of other people, um, some of the servants of David among the people fell, and yeah, Uriah the Hittite also died. Um, then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he has this long thought about how do I actually tell him this? Uh, and the messenger comes and has this long spiel to make sure David isn't mad. It turns out David's mad at all. I mean, as long as Uriah's dead. Um, and uh, the wife of, again, no, it's not Bathsheba. The wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. She lamented over her husband, and when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son, and the thing David had done displeased the Lord. So, yeah, plausible deniability has been preserved, um, and uh, everything's resolved, right? David has done what he thinks is necessary to protect the dignity and reputation of the royal house. God doesn't uh, agree. So how does this story connect to people in your churches, to people you might be counseling? Um, I mean, hopefully the leadership of your church is not bumping people off. If they are, it's time to call the police, not just preach a sermon about it. Um, How does this story actually connect? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How? In the sense that people are delving more and more into sexual Okay. And not finding their place. There's three or four marriages that are coming into the church and they're trying to fix their fifth marriage. Okay. So that's how Okay, so you have sexual immorality in pastoral leadership and it gets covered up, right? I mean, that happens in churches. Uh, something's been going on, and, and, and you, know, you confront somebody, and they deny it, uh, and, and the deniability is plausible. Uh, how, how does that story end? Well, the answer is never well, right? Um, now, no, notice how, how you got there, right? You got there by making the connection between David and, and you know, pastors, right? Which is a natural connection, because David is a leader in God's people, Right? And a pastor is a leader in God's contemporary people. Um, and uh, uh, and so, so there's, there's a sort of natural connection there. Um, what is God up to in David's life? I mean, think about the way this story unfolds. God could easily have made it unfold differently, right? For starters, God could have made it rain that day so David didn't go on the roof. He could have given David a cold, so he stayed in bed. Um, Bathsheba could not have got pregnant. That way Uriah lives, right? I mean, it's still, it's still a sin, but there's not the multiplied sins. What is God up to? Yeah. I think the placement of the Davidic covenant just a few chapters before is important, and this everlasting Right, yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so the Davidic covenant is a promise from God to David and his descendants. Uh, and thus far, you might think, well, that, well, of course God enters covenant with David because he's such a great guy. He's a king after God's own heart, right? But this shows us the other side of the story, right? It shows us the other side of the man after God's own heart, which is that he's perfectly capable of sinning in ways of which most of us can barely even imagine, right? Um, and part of that goes with the power that he has. I mean, it's, it's intriguing. You know, it, it's easy to sit in judgment on David, but, I mean, he does this because he has the power. What sins would we commit if we had the power to get away with them? You know, how much, of, how much sin do we not commit simply because we don't have the power to do it or we're afraid of getting caught? Um, 
and, and, and part of that is, yeah, God is going to show that his covenant with David is going to stand in spite of David's sin, which means there's going to need to be uh, ultimately a better son of David. Uh, and, and so that's setting us up, right, for where Christ is going to come, right? But it does show us that God is not simply about minimizing the number of sins that are committed, right? A sovereign God could have prevented these sins from happening, and yet he's chosen to turn David over to himself, right? God is not the author of those sins. God doesn't twist David's arm and make him sin. He turns David over to himself, and the result is mayhem. Why does God do that? Well, because, I mean, John Newton would say, nobody ever believed the doctrine of total depravity just by being told it. How do you come to believe the doctrine of total depravity? Well, you see it in your own heart, and you see it in the actions of others, and you start to say, yeah, this is really true. Left to, if God leaves me to myself for a moment, then this is the result. Uh, yeah, David talks about it in Psalm 30. You know, when my, when my mountain stood strong, you know, I, I thought I had everything, and then God turned his face away, and I fell. You know, David comes to understand something about himself through these experiences, that, these tragic experiences, that he couldn't have come to understand any other way. Think about Bathsheba's experience, though. What about Bathsheba as the person who comes to you for counseling? What do you say to Bathsheba? Okay. Right. Okay. So, so you want to, you want to encourage her that there's hope and forgiveness in Christ. Um, how much forgiveness does she need? She's the victim here. I mean, I, I, I know where you want to get, and, and, and when you're counseling somebody, there may well be situations where forgiveness is a very important theme. Well, yeah, and that's, that has to be addressed too as well, um, uh, the confession of sin, what's my responsibility right. in, in this sin as well, um, and also helping her to understand that um, even though Maybe um, uh, even when we're led to do something that we don't want to do, we still have an obligation right. to the Word of God and to what we commanded. Right. Yeah, and part of that, part of that is you, you, you counsel the person who's in front of you, right? You know, if, if you've if you got David and Bathsheba there, it's a different conversation from if you just have Bathsheba. Um, and, and we certainly want to address... You know the sins that counselees can be guilty of. I do wonder if that's the first place you want to go, though. I would probably want to talk to her about how wounded she probably feels. Yeah. How does it feel to be wounded? Let's talk about your wounds um, because your choice. You're going to default into bitterness and resentment. We want to try to, but you know, help her not to feel like she. I mean, she is the victim. She. Yeah. She's a deeply wounded woman. Yeah. A lot of deeply wounded women come into our house because their husbands have taken off, their husbands are into porn, and we've got these wounded women in our office. Right. Yeah, I mean... you feel guilty a lot of the Right. I I mean, you you could say, well, you should have screamed. But this is the king who, you know... I don't think that's where you want to start. And I think you do want to come alongside and say, I'm so sorry. You know, somebody you trust, the king of Israel should not have done this. You know, this is, this is a travesty that, that, that this happened. I'm so sorry. You must be so wounded, right? We want to come alongside and, and say that, don't we? Yeah.
Yeah. Right. Right. So, so we want to we want to come along, alongside Bathsheba, and, and and the question we want to be asking with her is, what is God up to in this? Again, because God is sovereign over this. And God could have prevented that abuse from happening. Now, yeah, on the one hand, that's a very scary thing to say, isn't it? God could have prevented that abuse from happening. We know that God works all things together for good, for his own glory. So in some way, something good and glorifying to God is going to come out even of this terrible sin. Right? And, and not all Christians are going to be comfortable saying that, right? But what's the alternative? The alternative is this sin is outside God's sovereignty, and I don't think you want to live your life there. It's certainly not where the Scriptures are, right? The Scriptures are, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good, right? This, this terrible abuse that's happened to you, Bathsheba, is something that God meant for good. Now, if you're counseling Bathsheba in that situation, you have no way of seeing how that's going to play out, right? But, and this is one reason why I think this is a powerful story to go to, we can see some ways in which this tragic, abusive situation is going to work out ultimately for God's glory and even for Bathsheba's good, ultimately, right? There are ways in which this is going to work out. And, and, and it can be helpful for people to see, you know, it's not going to be the same in my life, perhaps. But as I see God at work in a situation where how could something good come out of this? Well, God is going to work that for good. Uh, and we want to come alongside people and encourage people to be asking that question, to be looking for what, what is God going to bring out of this that's good without in the least underplaying how painful and devastating this experience is for her. I mean, yeah, she's not only been abused, she's lost her husband. I mean, she's the only person in this chapter who grieves for Uriah. She grieves for her. She's lost her husband. Um, and yet, God is up to good things in this. God is going to use this uh, for good. Uh, how is God going to use this for good? Well, that takes us uh, to the bigger story, doesn't it? Um, God has a profound plan to deal with our sin. David's sin has serious consequences in his life. You talked about the rest of 2 Samuel. It's super depressing from here on out, right? Uh, and again, counseling application for the, for, for the person who's looking at you saying, yeah, I know that, yeah, I know this is sin, but I want to do it anyway. Yeah, think twice because, you know, look at the story of how the rest of his life is dogged with the effects of this. David's moral failure does not only lead to the death of Uriah and his fellow soldiers, it leads to the death of his sons uh, Amnon and Absalom, uh, and uh, uh, you know, the, the same pattern of coveting and sexual sin. Um, so clearly, this is a story that shows us the devastating impact that sin has. Uh, but the Davidic covenant, yeah, that theme, I think... It, that's the largest story trajectory here, is going to connect us to the largest story of what God is doing in the history of Israel. Uh, he's doing something in David, right? He's, he's showing David his need of the gospel uh, in a way that he'd never realized before. As a result of that, we have Psalm 51, right? Which we wouldn't have if we didn't have David and Bathsheba. Um, but the biggest story is how this connects on to the better son of David. Um, Bathsheba, of course, shows up in the genealogy of Jesus uh, in Matthew 1, although not by name, right? She's there also as the wife of Uriah, which highlights uh, the, the, the abuse that she suffered, um, in part to show us right, that, uh, that this son of David is going to be someone who knows what it is to suffer abuse at the hands of religious leaders. 
Um, you know, one of David and Bathsheba's sons dies as a result of David's sin. The other one lives and is called the son that God loves. You know, two very different stories. And yet those two boys together point us forward to the profound truth of the gospel. That to free us from the judgment that we deserve for our sins, and are we really going to sit in judgment on David? If to think the sin is the same as to act the sin, we've all committed the same sins that David did. Uh, To free us from the judgment that we deserve for our sins, God would have to send the son that he loves most of all into this broken and sin-marred world to live and to die in our place. You know, David is not the king who's going to deliver God's people. If we're going to be saved, God himself is going to have to come and uh, deliver us. Uh, And in Jesus, God himself is going to be born into the world where human sin repeatedly leads to abuse and death. And that's evident in the circumstances around Jesus' birth. You know, Bathsheba's mourning cry for the murderous abuse of royal power finds a fresh echo in the cries of Bethlehem's bereaved mothers. But that's just a small part of the suffering that is going to be necessary in order to deliver us. Jesus does not have a relatively quick death in battle like Uriah, but experiences the brutal, drawn-out, humiliating experience on the cross uh, in which his tormentors milked every ounce of agony possible out of the process. Surely a loving God couldn't possibly desire that fate for his beloved child. Well, yes, he did. It is this, the most abusive event in all human history that is the determined purpose and plan of God and is the means by which God is going to deliver his people. So, uh, wrapping up here, because we could easily spend uh, hours talking about this, uh, this passage shows us clearly the desperate uh, wages of sin, but it also points us onwards to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that will follow. And as we work with our counselees and as we teach this passage, what we want to do is to help people see that, to help people to, to, to see that, that in many cases their story of abuse or their story of sin finds a parallel in the Bible which helps them then to see how the great trajectory of the Bible points to the answer to their situation of abuse or sin also. Well, we've run over a little bit there, um, but uh, we'll leave it there. And uh, hopefully that will stimulate you to work on some of these passages yourselves. Thank you. Copyright 2016, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.